just saying that it would be interesting to uh, look at the the various wave files because it's Love Guns now been uh, remastered twice, right? I think in '97 and then again in 2012. Because it's an example of the the trend in music mastering and mixing and mastering. Uh, some people call the volume wars, and so basically, uh, records have been getting louder and louder and louder. Um, they've now hit the top, and now they're kind of you know kind of bending back, but. Um, but it's really, it's been a, a overall, it's, it's not been good for music, the volume wars, because they're basically just, uh, just uh, pummeling everything. And rock, heavy rock doesn't necessarily respond very well to these things. That changes the listener's experience completely, because like, like when people talk about punch, we always, in the back in the day, we always, when we were making records, I just want to punch. Like, you don't hear that much anymore because it's pretty hard to make anything punch when, when you're going to pummel it down to being uh, as undynamic as albums are now. But, uh, so when, we, and you and I have talked about how much you like the sound of the original stuff, and, and I know a lot of people also have talked about, like, listening to stuff off of the vinyl, being like, there's something about vinyl. A big part of what they're responding to is the increased dynamic range, is the fact that the snare drums go, doom, you know, boom, boom, and you can, you feel them. Right. Whereas once they're uh, once they're remastered, that's cut down considerably. And then if it's if in the case of Kiss, it was remastered what in, in uh, '97, yeah. and then 2014. Okay, 2014. so so uh, it'll be interesting because almost anything that was mastered in the '90s, remastered in the '90s, for whatever reason, um, MasterDisc and, and Sterling, and there were just a few mastering houses that seemed to get all the, all that work. And during that period of time, everyone was using the Weiss uh, mastering gear, which in retrospect is a, a little sharp sounding, a little bright sounding, a little harsh sounding. And so as a result, like almost everything remastered in the 90s is a little bit harsh, a little bit bright, and um, it's just basically kind of glassy and two-dimensional. And so uh, I just remember, uh, I, was, I was in the music industry already back then, I just remember hearing the first handful of these remasters that were like, you know, they'd, they'd make it a double album instead of a single, and then they'd put some extra photos and extra material and charge you like 40 bucks for it or whatever, and I just remember getting one of those and being like, oh, what? You know, like, this is just brutal. You know, like, you have to turn it down a lot in order to really be able to listen to it because it hurts your ears. So when you did the, the remaster of the Cheap Trick Budokan, obviously that was something you were hoping to uh, avoid doing. You wanted to keep it warm and but also palatable for, for more spins on radio and things well, of that nature or shares? Or? Often it's very common to uh, mix up mixing and mastering. I, I, I've uh, worked on the re-recording, re which is the secret part, and the remixing of Budokan oh, okay, okay. And then mastering was done in New York or whatever. Um, but the, uh, but we're- Is it hard to let go of something so that it goes to mastering? Uh, kind of like the artist feels that way. I know, you know, just from being in bands, I always feel like, oh no. I always feel like when I get it back on the master, it doesn't have the punch that right. it had with the source tapes. Yeah. Well, you know, um, at this point, uh, Gravity, we've got like the, the main studio where we mix and the mastering studio. And so um, I've gotten, a, usually I'll advise people never to have the same person mix and master. Yeah. But um, I think because I've got, a, I've been doing it for 
20 years or whatever mastering, I, I figured out how to kind of like, make sure I have the time in between when I finish mixing and mastering. And so I'm my, I'm my favorite mastering guy now, but there are, uh, uh, there are like an upper echelon of maybe 10 guys in the country who are undeniably fabulous you know, mastering guys who have a great uh, track, track record. Um, but to answer your question in terms of do guys uh, generally, uh, is it hard to let go of it? I think, I think uh, a certain percentage of the time the producer and or mixer get to uh, get weigh in on that decision and say, oh, well, as long as we're going to have Ted Jensen do it, you know, or George Marino or Bob Ludwig, you know, the big names. Uh, everyone seems to be pretty comfortable letting, letting them take over for that last mile of the, of the marathon. Just to talk about Eddie Creamer, what was your exposure to Eddie uh, as, as a producer prior to like us sort of connecting him with Kiss here and you being forced to come on Historian.com and talk about Love Gun, their, possibly their, their finest album? Well, yeah, I mean, he's one of the most famous rock uh, engineers of, uh, of all time, for sure. And uh, my my personal experience was uh, only bent a little because he, he did a session one day at CRC when I was working there, and he was uh, he was kind of a prima donna jerk. But that wasn't the first time we'd seen a famous producer or engineer who was a prima donna jerk, and so it's kind of like... Of course he's, of course he is. He's Eddie fucking Kramer. You know he can do whatever he wants. You know? But, um, uh, but aside from that, completely, because I can you know, assess someone separately from that small experience. But, um, my favorite Eddie Kramer-related stuff uh, is probably what he did with Hendrix, because as I understand it, he was he, he introduced like the tape flanges uh, that were part of the guitar solos and using, uh, I think he might have, I don't know if he invented it, but he was a part at least of the decision to use, to run the guitar through the uh, Leslie speaker in certain parts. And um, and of course, he was almost inevitably involved with the panning decisions. Because if you listen to, with Hendrix, you know, there'll be a guitar over here and a bass over there, completely different speakers. And, and that's a, a bold thing to do, but they were, it's so psychedelic. You know, it's just so like, they're trying to blow people's minds at every turn, and he he knew how to implement effects that were just kind of trippy and kind of a, a surprise. The cool thing about Love Gun is where it sits, also too, because he's '77, we're about to go into disco, and, and and the sound is about to change, and then the snare is about to get huge in the '80s, and. So I'm curious, what, what were your thoughts? So when I asked you to check out Love Gun initially, when you checked it out, what were your thoughts on the production? The fact that it was in New York makes sense because the drums were done in a booth. If you listen carefully, the drums are really tight and dry. You know, it's yeah. pop, 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 pop. You know, everything is just... Uh, an argument could be made that it sounds small, but I've also I also can understand the argument that it sounds big, but it's definitely dry and flat, kind of flat sounding. Uh -huh. There's no ka in because this is the '70s, so there wasn't the of the '80s. Well, like the added reverb, you mean? Right. Just a giant snare. Yeah, there was no on Love Gun. There's no reverb on on the drums. Period. You know, it's all just dry. But the but bigger than that in the uh, the the recording the drums in a 
drum booth. And by the way, drum booths are like no, never bigger than this room. They're small rooms. Right, and you're in New York, so space is at a premium, right? So it's yeah. not a lot of giant rooms. It's... Absolutely true. And all the all the most famous studios in New York uh, are in, you know on the 17th floor in Manhattan. And so those buildings, you know, they have like a, a 10 foot yeah. expanse. And then once you put in this sound isolation, then it's eight feet. You know, so it's like a small, it's, it's like a lot of claustrophobic rock. It's a lot like this room we're in, yeah. And so, um, but the, uh, yeah, so the, the drum sound uh, could be could be considered small, but then by the same token, if you look at our, if you look at the, uh, the collection of, of uh, rock that was recorded between, say, 75 and 79, of the stuff that was done in New York, you know, it's just the list is kind of endless, right? I mean, it's like half of all rock in the, in the second half of the 70s was done in New York, and almost all of it has dry drums that were done in drum booths, right? And, um, uh, but, but there's also some other uh, commonalities that I thought were interesting when I listened to it. One of them I mentioned to you before, which is like at the beginning of the first song on the album. I Stole Your Love. On I Stole Your Love, the guitar, one of the guitars is out of phase with itself. Uh, usually when it's out of phase, it takes low end away, so you have less low end. But with, but with guitar, what I hear is a, like a carving out of the center. So basically like um, the, the mid frequencies and some of the low frequencies just kind of go away. And you have this kind of... So back then, would they, would, would, or I should ask today, would that's something you fix in post? Whereas then they would want to just get the original source sound and not mess with it later to keep things pure? Do you think Eddie does that sort of thing or spent a lot of time EQing things after the fact? Uh, you know, I'm because these guys had already worked together now on a couple records too, and their demo, right? And Kiss co-produced it, so I think they were pretty comfortable. And it may have been that Eddie wasn't there all the time and then mixed it. There's not a lot of information on the album. That's why it's interesting to to get you know a pro's ear on it. It's fun to think like, uh, okay, how famous was Eddie in '77? You know, pretty famous, you know. And how big was Kiss? You know, on the by Love Gun, they were pretty freaking big. Yeah, that was about to. They were about to be as big as they were ever going to be. Yeah, but so so it may maybe less likely on Love Gun, but maybe on the earlier stuff, there he could have had. A, a, in fact, I think he talked about having an, his assistant engineer do a lot of the recording. So he was like in the room, or maybe he was on the phone in the lounge while his assistant was doing the recording. So there's probably some of that. But but then when the band reaches a certain point, like Love Gun, by that time he probably was pretty hands on. So I, I'm curious, what's your review of the album? You know, it, it's gonna, you know, if you're gonna give it a one to ten, just as a, a '70s statement, or maybe like let's say you got a time capsule and somehow Kiss managed to gets in gets it, get in there. Is Love Gun worthy of intergalactic uh, travel? It falls into that really super simple late '70s dry recording aesthetic. And so to me, it's like, you know, like ballroom blitz, you know, there's the, the, the Ramones fall into the same thing, even though they're a different genre. But basically, um, uh, for me, there's like a couple, two, three songs on there that I think are really good songs and have the really tight, iconic, dry production. Um, and uh, 
And so, but then there's anytime I think a kiss, I always I always have to take into consideration like it 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 doesn't seem like they're always taking themselves seriously. And I and uh, they sometimes you'll get a sense that the show and the concerts are really the focus, and that the the albums are are something that they take care of. They spent a lot of time on it, or he did. They they intentionally kept it like it's not a lot of overdub, but there I do hear some drum overdubs, like on the first song on the intro on that on that drum beat. Seems like there's another drummer that goes on top. Of oh it. yeah, yeah. I noticed a couple things like that, and there's some big tambourines. In the late '70s, they'd already started, especially on hard rock records to uh, do this process that kind of was popular for eight years maybe, which was to record the, I don't, and again, I don't know if they did it, but record the kick, snare, and, and hat, and then go back and record the, the uh, fills or the tom parts separately. And in some cases, they'd even go record the cymbal crashes separately too, which to me is just kind of a lousy idea just because it's so easy to, for it to end up sounding disjointed. But, um, but that was uh, a way to. And the reason they do it is to so they could isolate the sound. And they could get the the toms to sound big and ringy. But then on the verses where where there was not any toms being played, they wouldn't have the ring, the kind of over ring of the toms going whoa 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 whoa. Paul Stanley says that that Peter was having trouble with the bass figure on the song Love Gun, and so that they added then another drummer come in and add that kick beat. Interesting, but um, but he loves to slag Peter. I would say Peter's playing on the record is really awesome, and one of the cool things that did come out, even though everybody says that you know, Kiss Alive is not a live album, and they added the audience, and it's from sound checks, and there's a lot of overdubbing and this, that, and the other. But the one thing Eddie Kramer said, and he did a live too, was that the only thing that he never touched was the drums or Peter's vocal mic on any of the tracks because they were perfect. Like, he didn't need to fuck with the drums at all. On Love Gun? On, uh, no, on the two live albums. Yeah, that's total, like, bullshit, total bullshit. He said he didn't have to mess with the drums. Yeah, yeah well, I'm sure he was told. That's part no, of but, his no, contract. But he, but he, he said he's fast on everything else. Yeah. Why do you think that's bullshit? I just think it's bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> because, uh, okay, here's just the, my perspective here is the... the uh, Live at Budokan, because that was mixed in, in 77 or 78. Right. But when we did Budokan 2, we had the tapes um, from the... There were three concerts. Two were in Osaka, and one was in Budokan. So it's interesting they called it Live at Budokan, because most of it was in Osaka. But anyway, uh, we had these these tapes. This has a ring to it, yes. And they trans we translated them, or transferred them to this fancy digital tape machine uh, in order... Uh, reel-to-reel tape machine, which is hilarious. But basically... Um, we had the band come in and overdub, you know, fix and overdub parts that they either either weren't optimal or they just didn't like them uh, aesthetically. And so there was so everything there were, there were plenty of drums fixed, bass, guitar, solos, rhythm, guitar, vocals, you know, everything. Not not everything was overdubbed, but I would say you know like ten percent of of the whole thing was parts that were recorded twenty years later, you know. And then mixed from there, um, which was a lot of fun. But that was a, like a three-month period back in '92. But basically, 
the uh, the like for instance the 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 recording engineer on Live at Budokan were weren't brought from the states. They were uh, a sound company from from uh, Tokyo, I believe. So basically, the I can't remember the guy's name, but uh, so the Japanese engineer had tracked everything. And I uh, I don't know. I don't think it was common to have concerts with that many people, that big an operation. Um, but the uh, the recording of the kick drum was like a bongo. On on uh, that's what we had to work with. And so, there, basically, every kick drum on both those albums had to be found, had to be kind of manufactured to a certain degree. Oh wow! And so, the idea that that uh, I got you. had perfect drums from a live album. The uh, I mean, Bunny Carlos is kind of famous for being one of the steadiest drummers like in rock history, and and, and Peter Chris, while being super respected, isn't necessarily considered one of the steadiest. Of all drummers, so I, I kind of—that's why I'm telling you, fucking listen to a live one and a live two. <laughs> I, I will give it a shot. I'll give it a shot for you, Dave. Well, you know, I think he was—he just said he didn't have to mess with it at all. He didn't have to mess with the vocals and the tempo. <laughs> anyway, you're probably right. You're probably absolutely right. Um, That's just really funny. It's our first kiss argument. Yeah, so what's happening there? Is that just multiple takes and he just took a bunch of noises and threw them in, or do you think it's one, he just made a bunch of noises and they panned it? It could be either way, right. but but uh, I love that kind of stuff. I just, it, it, there's a lot of feedback going on. So he, he probably started the solo holding his guitar up to his amp, you know, and then pulled Scraping it, it on stuff. And... Yeah, just, yeah. But but that's uh, that might be stuff they used to, that they do more often live, but then he was just like, hell, I'm going to do it in the studio too. And, and then it sounds like they'd go try to get a Hendrix thing there because it's like mm-hmm. you got Eddie there, and they're probably sitting around trying to pull stories about Jimmy out yeah. of Eddie all the time. I'm sure everybody does, right? Well, that song's got a Zeppelin-y kind of thing going too, and and when you point out that it sounds like it was written by the bass player, I never really thought of it that way. But the but the 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 idea of uh, the guitar following the bass totally tightly and boom, down, da-boom, da-boom, boom. Yeah, yeah. That's like a, a iconic hard, like early hard rock approach, you know? And um, uh, I, I, tend to like, I tend to like that a lot. It's, it's... That's my favorite about, about Kiss. I think it's Kiss in general. One of my favorite things is the way they do what I uh, implement ties, what I call ties. Uh, there's probably a better, roll that one off for me. There might be a, 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 a more appropriate or more accurate uh, term for it. But basically, um, when the whole band accents on an and, so like, uh, in other words, they, yeah, it's like a, a syncopation. Yeah. Tags, yeah. We call them ties, or we used to call them ties. Well, like pushes into the next bar. Right, so you, you anticipate the one by accenting the, the four and or something like that. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, and it, it has a, uh, a way of propelling the song forward, right? And they do that so much. It's almost every song they do that. And it, I think it's really effective. And to me, that's just 
when I hear those, it's just like, you know, that's rock and roll to me. Mm -hmm. I love those. think this uh, stacks up like in the great like you know rock records you know back in black and you know maybe there's uh, Van Halen one you know like in that 70s rock thing or you know I, and, and I'm also curious what you were listening to I know you said you were into Super Tramp <laughs> and, but yeah. I, and you know the truth is even though in 77 when this came out I didn't buy it it was more like 78 79 I was discovering the stuff so I was maybe fourth or fifth grade yeah yeah so I was, I was in third grade in 77 so you had an older brother or sister? I didn't. You didn't. So but you see, I was subjected to the neighbor, older brother, who had, you know, 2112 and a live one. Who had which is a deadly smoke, combination. Smoke pouring out from the, the bedroom above the garage. Correct, and there was also Sweet Leaf. Yes. So he uh, I didn't have that with that guy. Yeah. But uh, so there thusly I was, you know, kind of just listening to whatever was on the radio there for, in, in the late seventies. But then uh, by 80, that's Black and Black came out in 80, I think. 79, maybe, man. It might have been 79. But Back in Black, to me, is another level. You know? Yeah. It's just like. It's frightening. Uh, it's, uh, to me, like, in terms of just not even just that subgenre, because that's pretty much the same subgenre. Kiss moving into ACDC, pretty much the same. It's, it's hard rock, right? Right. Some, I wouldn't quite call it metal, personally, but it's no. hard rock. You know? So, but to me, Back in Black was was like a pretty significant step. Like, oh, you know, it just uh, sound, sonically sounded fabulous. Well, walking through history here with Doug McBride at Gravity Studios. Did, every, did every band look exactly like in 1964? Yeah, look at that. He's got the bass, he's got the... Look at the Although hair. he does have that kind of like angry, foreboding look on his face. Yeah, it gets worse, as I, you know. I'm well aware. <laughs> it gets worse. Have you had any kiss interactions? I have not had any kiss interactions. Okay. And you live to tell about it. This is a, a track sheet uh, that would have gone on the two-inch tape. Uh, so even in even in '72 or whatever year this was, what does it say the year? Sometimes it does. '72, I was right. Yeah. Nicely done. Um, so that's their initial demo recorded uh, by um, Eddie Kramer. Ron Johnson. Oh, Ron Johnson. Yeah. Yeah, the initial one. Okay, right. Who worked? I think uh, the, I think I read I heard that uh, Eddie, Eddie owed Ron some money and that's how Eddie got involved with Kiss. Gotcha. Ron's like, listen, I, he bent his arm to do a demo after they initially got in there. That's what my understanding. But yeah, that would have been the the, uh, the sticker they put on the two inch reel. Oh, cool. Would have mentioned what songs and the fact that there's eight of them means that they're running at uh, 15 IPS because usually you can only fit like three or four songs on a on a reel rather. So they were the fact that they were running at 15 IPS in. Oh no, I'm sorry. They're running right there. They're running at seven and a half IPS, which is just crazy. I can't even imagine. What does that mean? What's that crazy? So that means that their uh, the tape as it was recording was moving very slowly. Um, so higher quality sound, more lower, information? Lower quality sound, less uh, less fidelity. So yeah. what? Like in other words, th this is a cheap session. In other words, this is a cheap session. Wow, early early facial makeup, but they're not committed yet. It's kind of like they've got they've got no ace. They've got their toe in the proverbial water, but they're just not. Yeah, jeans jeans a sailor man. Yeah, that's Popeye the sailor man. Yeah, 
That's before they... Ace looks... Uh, like Lily Tomlin? Well, he does actually look like Lily Tomlin. I hadn't thought about that, but yeah. <laughs> I always thought Peter looked ridiculous here. He looks like a little like dog boy. <laughs> he doesn't look like Catman, yeah? I think Peter got the, the, the short end of the stick when it came to this design. Well, everybody kind of jokes around like, oh, this guy's a demon and this guy's a spaceman and this guy's this and why is there somebody a cat? Right. <laughs> but I, it, I, it, community, you know, it worked for me as a kid. So, literally, '77, they go and do a live. They go and record a live two at the LA Forum a few weeks after Love Gun comes out. <coughs> they release that, and then they do four solo albums, and then they put out their disco album. And by then, you know, they were no longer cool. What so. was the disco album? Dynasty had I was made for loving you on it. Oh yeah. See that's the one. Uh, <laughs> it's a Desmond Child co-write. Oh, wow. I was made for loving you. It was a big international hit. That was moment. My little brother bought that. See, that's when it wasn't cool. All of a suden. And uh, although, a although, rhyme. although sort of mind blowing, to find out that Eddie and Alex played on demos, of Ki on Kiss demos. Christine's all this. So we didn't touch on this. The Love Gun album is when. Uh, Gene was hanging out in L.A. and was friendly with those guys and found them, and that's and was taking advantage of them and getting them to come in and play because he couldn't get Ace and Peter off, off the fucking babysitter. Well, as I understand it, that's freaky and scary and probably true. Right. But I'll tell you what the the thing that uh, the thing that uh, occurs to me is that they did did I read it correctly that um, that Paul made. Ace played the guitar solo the same as Eddie had written it. So essentially just yeah, ripping Yeah, Gene off. made him. Yeah, you know, yeah that he, he showed him what Eddie had come up with and made him play it. Yeah. Yeah. But Ace liked it enough that he did it. Yeah. I used to have a red vinyl, one of this, and I went and drove and met a total stranger. Me and my brother did at their house and traded it in for a bootleg of uh, a 77 show. So here's some, here are the kiss cards. Like you said, those are, I think, 77, right? Poor guy. Oh, and listen, but I brought some other treats. Oh, wow. Well, that's when they were together, right? Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember kind of seeing that in the stores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And look at the kind of tripe that was being sold. Like, look at this. This, this constitutes a magazine that says, Ace Frehley, the ex-wizard, I want to marry you. What the hell is going on? And look at he's got curls, special curls. Well, this is Teen Machine. Okay, so that that's Teen Machine. The, that's the same concept. Fall Fantastic. Love, fall in love with us. And they're they're kind of vaguely Catholic looking. It's also a little phallic. Oh no! It's a little bit. Well, it's phallic about the <laughs> What's twenty-four sexy? inch candles held in front of them. And the fact that, <laughs> look at Gene. Gene's, I think he's so high that he's hasn't realized that that's not actually him. 